0: Hello. Welcome to Hacks. This is a tech podcast. My name is Simon. I'm joined by Rosemary.
1: Hey, everyone. And Rob. Listeners, happy 2019. That's right. (laughs) Uh,
0: This is our last episode of the year of our Lord, 2018. Um, I don't know what kind of a year it's been for everyone at home. Uh, On my end, it's been...
2: It's the year that Hacks started their podcast, so obviously that's it's right. A very
1: that's what 2018 year. will be remembered for. That I think yes, that's going to exactly. be the major.
0: That's going to be the major takeaway for sure.
2: Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> I've had an
0: interesting and not not to be honest, not all bad year. So when it's not all bad, I take that as a fucking win.
1: And I mean, we can all look forward to the Hacks 2018 recap show like three months from now when we get our shit together to do it.
0: Yeah, uh, well, for real, um, we are going to be taking for sure a roughly three-week break while um, you know pe- we got holidays and vacations and all that shit. So you know, we need, we we need a pause for ourselves. So you know, sorry about that, but you know, we got lives sort of to varying degrees. <laughs> but anyway, we thought a little bit about what we wanted the last episode of the year to be about. And we thought about doing sort of a recap thing, but then um, I got an idea based on something that happened over the last couple of weeks. And um, it was one of the less sinister things to, 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 uh, to, to provoke an episode of this podcast. It was the end of year metrics per account that Spotify releases every year. And they're a little bit different for me for each year. I don't know if only pro members get it or not, but essentially, uh, around this time every year, early December, they give you a playlist of all the songs you listen to the most. They give you this breakdown of your favorite artists, what your favorite umbrella styles are. And, um, this year they also did something where they gave you a uh, what they called a taste breakers playlist. So basically they tried to give you stuff that was sort of similar to stuff you already liked, but that didn't necessarily show up in your stats. And then other stuff that was just wildly different. Ironically, or maybe not ironically, but amusingly, some people that I spoke to online were actually really annoyed about this free playlist that they received because it seemed like Spotify was implying that their tastes were too narrow and maybe you should consider expanding them in the in the new year, which some people... Uh, found to be slightly resentful
1: despite the fact that this is the only algorithm online meant to unradicalize you yeah exactly. <laughs> what, what do you
2: mean by that rob
1: <laughs> well every everything that um a computer algorithm that is designed to cater to your tastes or show you other things you might like is just um increasingly narrowing in on one or two aspects of things that you've liked in the past whereas here they're they're um uh, consciously trying to broaden your taste which I think is laudable.
2: Yeah. Except people found it intrusive. Yeah, they did. Simon, so. Well, and it it yeah. reminds
0: me of um their ad campaign that I think they still sometimes do where they'll they'll put out an ad saying um you know, to the person who listened to My Heart Will Go On 20 times this winter, like we hope you're doing okay. And like it wasn't really clear whether these were like real examples they pulled out from their from their stats or whether they were just gags, but I did think this notion of um of using the fact that they're tracking all your listening, um, obsessively, and then turning that into a, uh, into a marketing hook is really, it's an interesting shift.
1: They condescending
0: a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Like, and, and I felt weird definitely about those specific ads, the one that seemed to like mock individual listeners, um, which again, were they based on real people or not? I don't know. There's probably an answer somewhere. So anyway, that kicked off my thought of, we should do an episode about the streaming economy, as especially, or I should say, particularly as it affects uh, music and TV and film. Because there's been a host of stories about this stuff in the last few weeks, and there's a whole realm of considerations and implications that we've never really discussed in any meaningful way on this podcast. And we may not by the time the episode is over, but I figured we'd at least give it a crack. One thing I wanted to start thinking about was compensation, because that also, tends to be a, a conversation that comes up whenever Spotify does a big release like this. And I was hoping to put, get some specific stats, and luckily, there was a brief thread from Zoe Keating, who is a uh, Canadian cellist. And she had her, uh, she posted a thing with her own stats that went up. And anyway, so then she talked about how she's been compensated by Spotify. So, quote, In 2018, my music was listened to on Spotify for 190,000 hours by 241,631 people. Those 2,252,293 streams netted me $12,231, which is 39.2% of my annual rent. So uh, those are the Spotify stats. She also went on to say uh, what she got from Pandora, Amazon Prime, Amazon Music, YouTube Music, Tidal, which was, uh, by the way, $47.00. And um, she said 673,000 Apple music streams amount beats me, which is uh, very reflective of Apple's strange reticence to release any kind of meaningful data to people who do things. Uh, They are getting slightly better at that in terms of like the podcast metrics and stuff, but it seems to be a slow thaw. So I wanted to throw out. The fact that these services are have done a lot to amplify convenience, and we can consider YouTube as sort of um, as as being part of this as well. Um, but it also seems like with each new paradigm shift, they find ways to pay artists less, and this doesn't seem entirely tenable to me.
1: I have thoughts, uh, but first I want to shout out Jay Z because even though Zoe Keating only made forty-seven dollars on title, her per stream payment amount uh, of all the services she listed in her tweet was actually the highest on Tidal. So on Tidal, she got um, 1.3 cents every time one of her songs was streamed, which is wow. actually a fairly large amount. Uh, unfortunately, it, it yeah. seems that no one uses Tidal because um, those uh, streams were were puny in comparison to the, the amounts of the other services. Um, <clears throat> but I think um, what this tweet uh, speaks to is um, I think one of the most Prophetic Ideas of the Early Internet, which is the long tail. Um, so that um, came out when people were talking about Amazon as a bookseller. So in in the, like, Paleolithic age. Um, and it's this idea that, like, um, when it comes to um, digitally recorded uh, art uh, or goods, um, there is a, a very small um, trickle of consumption for each individual good. Um, but it extends... Uh, backwards and forwards in time almost infinitely, um, because those those goods will never be um, thrown away and, and unrecoverable, right? They're online forever uh, to be consumed by new people who come across them. Um, so I think the the logic here for Zoe Keating and others is that, um, you know, the the long tail has been sort of twisted around on them. The streaming services tell them, well, you're gonna get a very low uh, payment per listen, but in theory, um, your stuff is on our service forever. Uh, and so you'll be uh, eating off of your best tracks um, for decades to come. Of course, it's not really true because other artists are coming along and pumping new content into the system constantly. Uh, so, uh, you know, Zoe Keating's share of overall streaming uh, will probably be going down through the decades and she'll be making less and less money, uh, even though her stuff is still around. Sorry, that was a lot.
2: <laughs> the long tail uh, serves niche, niche interests. That was the basic observation that that was an advantage that uh, of the internet, but like like you say, Rob, that it's like a never-ending tidal wave uh, to use a choice metaphor of of incoming content. So uh, whether you actually secure your position because of the web is is debatable. And also, like artists always got residual payments, so um, they just get a smaller fraction now than than if they had. Uh, than in the legacy media industry
0: well and maybe it's it's also worth talking about the fact that now that it's been these streaming services have been around for a few years they're really starting to become a normalized part of the music economy in particular and over the last year and a bit we've really seen artists respond to that in a certain way Uh, or rather i should say in i should say in a set of ways for instance um, now whenever especially a major rap artist has a new release like your drakes or your migos or a uh, race did this i think also to some extent rap records have always been long like they've always they've always been for the most part cd capacity but now freed from the constraints of physical media and also you know buttressed by the fact that the more tracks you release at a given time the more streams you get the more you get paid and also the better it is for your for your chart ranking um you'll have artists drop 20 25 sometimes even 30 tracks on a single record no matter if you know by the time you get to track 20 or 22 you're into the real dross like i i have to assume i didn't listen to a note of the new drake album but i have to assume the stuff near the end was just like pure dog shit as well as the stuff near the Um, beginning (laughs) yes exactly
1: it's a fascinating mess um the way that um streams are counted Uh, in terms of um, both how much money artists make and um, chart rankings, like you say. So we could talk for a long time about this idea of um, streaming equivalent albums. So like, because no one buys records anymore, Um, the Billboard organization has to base chart rankings off of how many songs were streamed. So, of course, this creates this entirely new branch of game theory about, as you're saying, Simon, how many tracks should be in an album. Or, like, Drake will not only release an album with, like, 30 tracks or something, but in the album Views, he actually tacked an old song, Hotline Bling, which was extremely popular, onto that album to sort of... um, To juke the stats, yeah, to juke the stats exactly, and that song had already been streamed like half a million or no, half a billion times or something by the time that that album came out. Yeah,
0: a ludicrous number of times. And this is like a very old tactic. I mean, the the notion of tacking, you know, mid mid cycle singles onto uh, onto an album from which that single did not come, but this it's you know it's really an old tactic, but they just found new utility
1: for it. And then uh, really quickly, the other thing that I don't quite understand is um if you sell concert tickets along with uh your streaming album that's it counts right, as yeah. an album sale or something so that's that's something that artists are doing now increasingly elaborate ticket sale packages to to lock in those album sales in the first week
0: yeah the um the success of those tactics though i don't think is proven yet like Nicki minaj notably did something like that and her album was still a bit of a flop yeah like
1: the, the m M&M feature couldn't save it unfortunately
0: <laughs> yeah i guess i know rosemary you wanted to talk about a totally different aspect of this which is the fact that not only are um the formats of the albums like the length the number of tracks etc being affected by these uh, chart placement considerations and these streaming number considerations, but also you have artists sort of being led by algorithms in terms of um, composition choices.
2: Um, Yeah, there's a Netflix series called Maniac um, that stars uh, Emma Stone and Jonah Hill, and it's about uh, the culture of drug testing, um, being paid to test test new drugs. And uh, Carrie uh, Fukunaga, the director, um, I haven't seen this this series, or I watched a bit of it, but I I didn't really feel compelled to watch more. But uh, So obviously the algorithm about, doesn't work. Yeah, exactly, because they recommended it to me, and and I did uh, click on it, but just did, didn't want to go there. Fukunaga talked about how the writing process was influenced by the Netflix recommendation algorithm. So based on the data... Yeah, they made significant decisions about about the narrative. Um, he changed things that they thought would uh, impede on the binge bingeability of, of um, the show, because I guess that's something they're trying to optimize for. Personally, I've never binged anything. I don't know, does, that, that doesn't really appeal to me, but I think I'm uh, in the minority there. He calls this, Fukunaga calls this, audience participation, <laughs> which is great. It's, so, um, you know, it's one way to put it, but literally he's putting this uh, a human face on uh, information, which would be, yeah, d- derived from large data sets. Uh, so, I mean, it's good that he, um, you know, he just uh, uh, w- went with the flow and, and um, I don't know, I think that series considered a success. So, you know, wh- where's the harm in that if they optimize for the large data sets that click on uh, Netflix
0: I'm I'm less convinced that it is a good th- I mean it's I guess it's good for him that he was able to creatively adapt to the very strange parameters of the job um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like to be honest um, I've seen like a decent number of Netflix original series and there they don't release precise stats about what does well and what doesn't do well although there has been a raft of cancellations which is interesting because that that's sort of new so they're clearly assessing what does and does not work. But frankly, the quality control seems like wildly out of whack. Like a lot of the shows just aren't that interesting. I know a lot of people who tried Maniac, just like you did, and, and just like checked out after an episode or two. It also seems like their algorithms, like they lead them to, to do a lot of a specific sort of thing. And then that just becomes so so tiresome so quickly, and there's no real other creative considerations other than does it does it check those boxes? Like, how many shows about cults do we need? How many true crime shows do we need, or or true crime ask shows? And I, I assume that also stretches out to their acquisitions of, uh, for instance, British and um, Australian and other parts of the world series and directs their content strategy in that sense. I mean, I'm sure it works great in terms of um, in terms of the metrics. Uh, I'm not sure that creatively it's doing wonders for them.
1: I don't actually have a problem with this. I mean, I think that if you think about Netflix, you know, in the terms of like an old school television network or something, like obviously there are a lot of differences, but just like in terms of, um, you know, being a creative organization that also has a bottom line to support, um, you know, the creators uh, in the network world have always received notes um, from the uh, executives, right? And... um, You know, those notes were always uh, intended to juice basically the same things, right? Uh, To keep viewership up, although now we attach the word engagement to it. Um, It's the same thing. Um, But uh, those old school executives didn't really have um, uh, really good information about exactly what notes, um, what effect those notes would have on audience engagement, um, except for their guts or their experience. And the difference now is that Netflix believes um, that it has algorithms that um, will uh, take that guesswork out of the equation. And again, Simon, to your point, like Netflix is not has not optimized these algorithms for the most fulfilling uh, artistic creations, right? Like they just well, maybe they
0: should rob fuck
1: off. That's not what podcast <laughs> this is. They they just want viewers to sit through or click next episode or like you don't even click next episode anymore. It just starts right. So. I also read that article uh, about Fukunaga and what he talks about. And I'm sure the algorithms get more complex than this. But really, the main thing they're looking at is Netflix wants to avoid any um, development in the series that will cause viewers to not view the next episode. So one example he talks about um, is uh, he had written this episode where like... And I don't know anything about this maniac show, but apparently there was an episode where like um, time would proceed backwards for the first half of the episode until we reach some climactic moment. And then we would see the same events unfolding forward through time or something. And Netflix was just like, no, (laughs) no one's going to watch that. They're going to (laughs) turn the series off immediately and never return. Um, So, you know, in terms of uh, who you're taking notes from, I think. There's probably not that much difference, uh, whether it's a higher up in the organization or a computer. Um, you know, I, uh, I think certain nah. creators will come to Netflix uh, or come to other um, artistic distribution um, avenues and be allowed to do work freely. Like Alfonso Quaron, Cu- whatever, uh, Simon, edit in the correct pronunciation. He I will not. <laughs> fuck. He just um, released this film, uh, a, a small, um, you know, biography of a, a woman a caretaker in like the Mexico that he yeah, grew up I in. That it. was like black and white. Like probably Netflix wasn't giving him notes on that, right?
2: They're t- yeah, they're trying to go for a uh, awards season too. They've they've got that, but they're also, like you say, Rob, it's a it's a production on an industrial scale, and a, a film and TV was always that. So. Um, it's always well, trying I'm gonna... to appeal to, the, to uh, the largest number of people possible, unless you are making art house films. But um, with the film that you're referring to, Roma, that's that's uh, you know ticks that box, and uh, that's apparently to great success. I haven't seen it, but
0: um... I've seen Roma. It's uh, it's fine. I mean, I'm not going to turn this into a Roma review, but Roma is clearly the um, they they got into this whole tiff with the Cannes Film Festival, which we're not going to get into right now, but it definitely seems like Roma was their deliberate attempt. And they kind of did this. They started to do this last year with uh, Mudbound and some other stuff, but it really seemed like what what project can we fund that is like maximized potential for um, you know critics uh, critics um, adulation critical adulation and ultimately awards and. In that respect, it is doing gangbusters. It has won almost every Critics Circle prize. It has run the table in a way I have not seen in years. Whether it's deserving of that or not is, not, is outside of the scope of this podcast, but it definitely seems like that is a prestige play and not a metrics play. But it is interesting that they care so much.
1: You know, I, I also saw, made the mistake of watching uh, Icarus, which is uh, their documentary about doping in the professional cycling world, uh, which won, I think it won the Best Documentary Oscar last year. Um, And I thought it was pretty shit. Um, But, you know, obviously, uh, they decided to... I I think they bought the movie. um, So it was produced independently, and and they acquired it. But I I think the acquisition decision was based on that same sort of calculation. You know, people really like sort of true, crimey, sportsy-type documentaries, and we think this is a really good bet for awards consideration.
0: It is really not hard to guess. It's, like, probably easier... To game Oscar nominations than it is to game what people will enjoy, will watch in droves on Netflix. Yeah, that's like probably really, true. They're not they're not that hard a gang to to guess. But I I, I would push back a little bit on this notion of um, getting notes from a higher up is no different than what's going on on Netflix because um, I mean I think that if you're talking about the, the the network television process you're not totally wrong. I mean there is a there's an, an extensive notes process for most series on in the network produced in the network system but you know there was um i mean it i think it's still pretty much the case on hbo and certain other places that pretty much they line up the creatives they want and like the basic premise that they think will will sell and then they pretty much leave people alone at least maybe not all the time but certainly like a good chunk of the time Uh, fx is also a good case of this the the levels of creative control that Uh, Donald Glover has on Atlanta, or that um, any of the David's, Milch, Simon, uh, or um, shit, Sopranos guy, David Chase, uh, had at HBO, or that, I know he's persona non grata now, but that Louis C.K. had over on Louis. Totally unheard of on any Netflix series. Even just like a year and a half ago, I mean, what, what Lynch was able to do on the third season of Twin Peaks, and I know he did have a meeting at Netflix like four or five months ago, but who knows what that was about. Again, these are levels of creative control totally unheard of in Netflix, as far as I know.
1: But is that? are you just saying that because you want Netflix to be like HBO? I mean, remember where Netflix gets its money is its subscriber base. And it, its only way to uh, increase that income is to grow its subscriber base, right? So, like, it, sure. it really can't be chasing uh, increasingly niche um, creations from, like, brilliant creators, right? It has to go for the broad base. And that's why it's even doing stuff like three-camera sitcoms now.
0: I'm not trying to say that it's it's it should be, tra- you know, transferring its business model to a totally different thing that doesn't work for it, um, because, you know, this is capitalism and it's going to do what it's going to do. I'm just saying that I think that saying, oh, this is just like other modes of TV production is a little bit false. Yes, yeah, that's fair.
2: What I want to know, what I'm looking forward to is uh, Netflix recently hired somebody away from ABC uh, to work with Shonda Rhimes, who is also from ABC. Um and uh, this, uh, its her name's Channing uh, Dungy. And so, so she's going to be overseeing the programming that's made by Barack and Michelle Obama's higher ground mm-hmm. oh, yes. production company. Yes. Hell so, yeah, yeah. What kind of notes are they getting? That's what I want to know.
1: The real, the real Shonda heads and uh, Obama heads are so happy about that. Everyone who listens to this podcast, basically. <laughs> what I do find most interesting about the Netflix content algorithm actually, is that it, um, how do I phrase this? I probably should have thought about it before I started recording on a podcast, but... Why why would we start (laughs) now? Why would we do that? Um, uh, It uh, produces decisions that are based on the content of the television, not necessarily the quality of the television. Um, And what I mean by that is, is that I've been... Uh, obsessively watching this netflix series called the haunting of hill house um hell yeah yeah, which is both extremely good and very very bad um i i admire (laughs) accurate yeah i admire so much about it i admire this is what i like about it i like everything that it is reaching for that it's trying to do right like it's this intense family drama that like takes place it has this weird theme where like it's inside a horror movie and like that really appeals to me and that's the netflix algorithm at work right um but the actual execution of the show the acting the writing uh often the lighting stuff like that is just like very 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 terrible um oh i don't know about that simon please be honest with yourself And I, I think that, you know, that's that's something that the algorithm can't correct for, right? Like, it can tell creatives, like, you should make this story decision, uh, maybe stay away from this, that story decision, but it really can't account for the fact that um, this is a medium that takes real craft, um, and that can go wrong sometimes.
0: Hill House is a really great example of a Netflix series because it... It takes a bunch of user of viewer-friendly elements and it blends them into a style. I think a lot more successfully than other series of theirs do where it it's basically this is us with ghosts um which is just dynamite for getting viewership because it combines like horror stuff which everyone likes while most people like and really gets numbers and it and like seriously teary melodrama and it's like pretty good at both and it also has and I, i no one's written about this so i don't know if this is really a thing but i don't know how much of the show you've watched rob but um, in the middle of the, sh- of the show, there's a string of episodes where the intensity gets really high. And in particular, there's one episode that is mostly made up of about five or yes. six long takes. Yes. And it, it's also like technically, if you read up on how they did it, it's one of the few things that I've seen produced on Netflix that is actually technically impressive in terms of how it was accomplished with the, the way the sets were connected, the amount of choreography involved. That makes now several series that have been produced for Netflix that have these sort of conversation episodes midway through, usually involving some aspect of the production. Uh, in particular, there's at least two seasons of Daredevil where um, midway through there's an episode that features like a long take fight sequence, which are, of course, always ripped off from Old Boy, but we're not going to get into that. And it seems like they put in these sort of hype sequences midway through to encourage people to keep watching if they're, if they're like not sure about it. There's like some buzzy element midway through. That's got to be an aspect of their of their development as well.
1: Definitely, definitely. I, I can see, like, I'm watching it a little bit after uh, the series has come out now, but I can totally see uh, some social media buzz in that first weekend, right? As people are starting to hit that that um, binge exhaustion point to encourage them to keep going. By the way, if what? you think this is a good show, I think that long take episode is a great example of how bad the writer brother is as an actor.
0: Oh, I we're not going to get into this, but Michael... <laughs> H- 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 Hiesman, um is is absolute garbage on it. I actually think m- almost everyone else is good. It's just it's unfortunate that he's like the central character. Yes. But anyway, my god, I'm not going to turn this into a TV review podcast. Whew. Anyway, uh the last thing I'll say about Hill House is that the thing that I find kind of funny about the fact that that midsection is so good is that almost everyone hates the last five minutes, and it seems like at that point because they didn't think of it as like a recurring series, they kind of didn't care anymore but
1: anyway the last five minutes of the the season
0: of the series yeah or the season depending on what they do it's it ends very not okay i'm at like anyway
1: all right yeah
0: oh boy i'm sorry (laughs) anyway um please send us your real house (laughs) feedback and let us know if we're totally off base um the the last thing i wanted to mention in, in terms of um the netflix content model is that by now and this is sort of, uh, again, as with uh, Spotify and services like that, people are starting to get used to the streaming experience to the point where uh, in the animated series Big Mouth, which I don't know if you've seen any of with uh, Nick Kroll and John Mulaney, in the second season, they have gags specifically about uh, getting you to watch the, the episodes. Like, they, they, they put in explicit foref- foreshadowing saying, you're binging this, right? That's fine. We can talk about this now. Hmm. And, you know, teasing future, future events. And then when it gets to that skip button adding like you know jokes sort of around the structure of the button so like there's they're starting to develop it like you know the shows have become self-aware i think it's interesting that, that that we've hit a level of maturity with these services that that's being folded into like the scripts themselves
1: yeah that's interesting i mean there's in the sort of prestige tv era that immediately preceded the one that we're in now uh, there was a lot of talk about um you know uh Series being written and produced in such a way that they are really only for co- close readers, containing like tiny yeah eggs yeah. There's no entryway. Yeah.
0: yeah. So the uh, I mean, there's one other sort of aspect of specifically the televisual side of things, although it also applies to the um, to the music side, the the audio side, whatever, which is the appearance of an endless catalog. And I was thinking about this specifically because. A few weeks ago, the streaming service, which actually never came to Canada, called Filmstruck, uh, announced that it was closing uh, in a few weeks, which I think is uh, either is coming up soon or has already gone by. I don't know, because again, the service never came here. But it was really the only way to, uh, from anywhere, stream um, a lot of titles available, for instance, from Criterion and um, a lot of other sort of foreign, uh, more obscure, more independent work. And uh, now it's since been announced that Criterion is going to be running its own service, which is coming up in the new year and will be available in Canada, as well as I assume other places. But you, you uh, can it also re-
2: stream uh, Criterion films for, through the Toronto Public Library.
1: Oh, good call, Rosie. That Brown. is
0: true. Yes, uh, through – there's the uh, library-affiliated program called Canopy with a K that is still around. Um, I don't know what their selection is like or what the logistics are of um, – of, do you know if they, if there's a queue to stream things? Like if they're if they're on lease?
2: I don't I don't know, but I just want to uh, put it put a word in for uh, yes.
0: Always visit your local uh, library, folks. Yeah, if you exactly. take no, if you take nothing else from this podcast, <laughs> yeah. um, the film struck thing was interesting because first of all, immediately, like so many people were sad and, and angry about this. Which you know makes sense because almost everyone who would be paying to subscribe to a service like that are going to be people who really care about film and the quality of films and uh, and also the visual quality, like the actual streaming quality. Because a lot of these movies, you know, you can find online via like dodgy streaming sites or in some cases even uploaded to YouTube, but they look like shit for the most part, and, and they may not have good subtitles, whatever. So there's several different ways in which they care about quality, and I I think that the closing of FilmStruck really underlined just how precarious the uh, the existence of these services is and the the access to these archives is um, and of course this connects into a broader issue about uh, the preservation of film whether it's physical or digital which is of course itself also physical um, but anyway I was wondering if anyone had thoughts about the um, these the, I mean first of all the Netflix selection and the appearance of uh, of what's there and what's not and um and how it sort of orients us with like the concept of the library of of film you know what i mean
2: one thing that this brings to mind is is uh, you're talking about um if you go outside of these channels um you know it's a bit uh hit hit or miss the quality and also there's all the pop-ups and whether you're going down some identity theft funnel funnel on the web um which I guess is always a possibility, but uh, it just reminds me: Does it? Does, do people still um, use Pirate Bay and uh, or have these services completely re- replaced uh, that informal uh, sharing networks for uh, for film and music files? Uh,
1: I I have friends who are still on uh, many uh, pirate-oriented <laughs> websites, and and they're going strong. Um, I, you know, I think even users on those websites would say that they have Netflix subscriptions for instance, and it, it's a lot like public transit or something where like if there's a very convenient option for you, uh, you'll use the most convenient option. So if something's on Netflix, I'll stream yeah. it on Netflix and otherwise, you know, it may get yeah. pirated by my friend.
0: And right. also like, you know, the other options available to you, um, don't, don't, no, don't necessitate you using an IP blocker. Uh, in case you go to download, I don't know, Venom or some shit, and then it turns out that Sony is sending you a cease and desist or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. I still they're not re- they don't really happen anymore as far as I know. But I still remember those uh, those lawsuits from like a decade ago when like little old ladies were getting sued for millions because their grandson had downloaded, I don't know, Iron Man.
2: Well, this does still happen in uh, Berlin because <laughs> maybe Germany generally that. Um a very enterprising law firm would uh, send out somehow, I don't know how they had this information, send out these letters and um, collected money off of friends of mine um, because they innocently or not so innocently. uh, (laughs) Depending on your outlook. Uh, Yeah, like Twilight. This one friend of mine was very annoyed because she just happened to be sick. She was just kind of, I don't don't know why, she downloaded Twilight and it, and it cost her 700 euro. Oh my God. That she, that she paid to this law firm. But then these other friends of mine told me that they had, they referred to a lawyer friend and he got the price knocked down to 150 euros. So. Um,
0: That's still yeah. a lot for Twilight.
2: <laughs> for anything, really. So, um, yeah. Be careful out there.
0: Yeah. If I'm going to get sued for 150 euros, I'd better be caught downloading like the Decalogue or something cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't want it to be like sausage party.
2: Yeah. No, no. Twilight really added to the humiliation. Decalogue. Yo,
0: for sure. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I mean, these, these, I think we, whether or not we've been living in Berlin recently, I think that, that certainly lives in the shadow of my mind. Whenever, uh, whenever I get pinged by my, my ISP for downloading something uh, that I totally uh, was mistaken in them thinking that I downloaded, by the way.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, So just to return to, um, you know, Netflix and this idea of um, the catalog being a stable idea, um, I I think it's pretty well understood, although, you know, it's not in Netflix's marketing material, is that Netflix is a subscription service and you're paying for a a subscription to whatever they have available you know, at the time that you open your web browser. Um, and I, I find it very interesting that um, things rotate both in and out of Netflix. Um, I assume as as licenses expire and new ones come into effect um, and that there is a master schedule somewhere. Like you can go to websites and they will tell yeah. you what's, what's coming into and going from Netflix this month. Um, Not
0: with a ton of notice, but yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. But like there's no way for a user to plan on that, right? And so it, it does sort of... For me, at least, create a a feeling of low grade panic when I'm looking over the the my list function in Netflix, the list of things that I want to watch eventually. Although the list just keeps growing and growing, um, uh, because you know what what you see on the catalog may not be there next month or the month after. I'm not sure if anyone else feels the same way, or if it's just something that we're we're used to at this point in time.
0: I mean, I don't have enough that I want to watch on Netflix that I keep a list, and it, especially because, and I think this this was sort of part, you know. A, um, a a real source of outrage was the fact when Filmstruck went down was of course that these are films that Netflix doesn't care to have, and you know that major uh, streaming services don't care to have, which makes sense because they're uh, you know extremely niche titles for the most part. In general, like I I haven't scrolled through like my entire Netflix just to to verify this, but in general it's rare to find many movies made before like 1999 even. Um, and to say nothing of, you know, foreign films and, uh, and older documentaries and things like that, you know, there's just not a lot of that programming. So when a service that does offer like specialized stuff, uh, goes down, it's really noticeable. Now that's distinct from, you know, the, the music realm where people generally have the feeling that everything is on Spotify, right? Which isn't actually true. There's tons of holes if you, if you go digging for like any length of time. But um, there isn't that same sense of completism to these, uh, to these film services.
2: Netflix in Canada's, let's face it, pretty poor selection compared to what you get in the States. People all often complain about that. And they're, they're, the classic movie category is just pathetic. It's like three <clears throat> films or something. <laughs> I
0: guess also the, the reason I wanted to talk about Filmstruck particularly was because it also started this debate about, well... You know, should I just be? Should we all just be investing in physical media instead? And again, digital media and physical media really the same thing, but I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, and I I have to admit, like I have been since now that I have like sort of an income that is more than just my rent uh, for probably the first time ever, I have been starting to you know collect physical discs um, uh, for both music and film because frankly, like the the like I said, the streaming services which we don't even know if they're economically feasible long term. Like, I don't, I don't have solid assurances that Spotify is going to be here in five, ten, fifteen years. Do you? So, like, that's part of the reason that I still collect, you know, CDs, which I know people at home will be uh, probably la- howling with laughter about because I've got like five giant wallets of like discs and uh, and booklets by my feet here. But uh, and I also collect DVDs, especially um, you know obscure and foreign shit. Um, cause I don't know but I mean, do you guys have faith that these services are all going to be here in their existing formulations in like a decade?
1: No, but I do feel like there's always going to be some kind of, um, market to deliver those back catalogs to people. Um, and there will be some way to access them. And I don't know. I mean, like, you know, obviously you're entitled to do whatever you like with your money. Um, and it is, Thank you you're welcome, Simon. <laughs> um, and I I agree that there is an appeal to, like, looking at uh, your bookshelf and it's just filled with, like, perfectly organized uh, CDs or DVDs or whatever. But, like, also, aren't you engaging in a kind of, like, prepper mentality? Like, you're preparing for Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you're okay with that.
0: No, no. So, but the difference is, the difference is a prepper, like an apocalypse prepper, will stock up on garbanzo beans or whatever and wait for a... An apocalypse that I don't think is ever coming. I think that we're looking forward to a steady, horrible decline in which gradually worse and worse things happen. But you're not going to get that glorious moment of, you know, orgasmic end of end of days. Unfortunately for you. Um, but uh, what I am prepping for is, let's say, the Spotify's and the um, whatever the Criterion Channel and the Netflixes of the world. Um, you know, let, let's say for instance, Netflix is like insane multi-billion dollar production budget produces nothing that gains them new subscribers and maybe actually loses them some and they uh and they shut off their their lights overnight then who are people going to come to to watch movies they're going to come to my house i will have friends
1: right so your your apartment is like the seed vault for western culture
0: and hopefully hopefully not just western culture but yes true true I want to I want to make sure it's it's
2: diverse. So I have a good prepper anecdote. Shoot! Oh, do oh it. Yeah. Slightly slightly off topic, but I was browsing um, uh, meetup.com uh, not too re- not too long ago, maybe in the last couple of years, and there 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 are a couple uh, prepper meetups in Toronto. Of course, there are. And uh, and the the one that that week. The topic was, was fish antibiotics, which I thought was very intriguing. What? I, thought, I almost wanted to go.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. What Are fi- are those antibiotics for fish yeah, the, or the antibiotics for of humans,
1: antibiotics humans so. made? Used on fish, I think. So you could
2: stockpile those in the event that you needed antibiotics. And I guess they were probably going to just advise you about dosage or Wait, something no, like that. No, no, they're, they're not pro
1: Antibiotics, people, come on. <laughs> We're putting no, a proper episode I'm, on the schedule. This is there's no, a lot of inf- misinformation so, happening.
0: They're they're stocking. I want to make sure I understand. Um, th- they're stocking up on antibiotics for in case you survive the apocalypse and mutate into a fish.
2: That that would be one interpretation, but I, I think it, it's more mundane, Simon. It's just uh, you don't have access to actual antibiotics, so you could you could get access to fish antibiotics because of your uh, fish farming. Okay.
0: Do any of these prepping societies ever ever like try to game out in advance what the barter systems are going to be like in the post-apocalypse and then like try to stock up on the things that they think will um, maximize their bartering potential? Criterion DVDs. That's what I would do. Yeah, well, fuck, yeah. I'm going to do great. I've got, like, I'm not going to tell you how many I have, but there's enough for one shelf anyway. <laughs> anyway, well the fact that we've gotten to the goofy prepper discussion tells me that we've uh, hit the end of our rope on this uh, on this general topic. Um this is not one of our well, I guess that's two in a row that's like we wanted to give you a break on doom and gloom and maybe talk about something a little bit lighter. So hopefully that worked. I will say that as much as I am dubious about the notion of algorithm guided uh creativity whether that's for film or music, which is a subject we didn't even really get into. Um I mean, I also recognize that it's not that important compared to a lot of other things that we think are going downhill.
2: Well, uh, and compared to all the other terrible things that algorithms uh, do and the terrible effect they have in our lives, uh, yeah,
0: that's true. These are relatively benign and, and yeah. perhaps in some cases even nice uses yeah. for algorithms. So, I mean, and ho-
2: hopefully, on a future episode, we can actually um, tackle that subject. I think Rob's the expert, the resident expert on that.
1: Oh, sorry. I wasn't listening. I was I was looking up Netflix movies to recommend (laughs) for our plug section. Uh, The the Netflix movie uh, Bright, starring Will Smith, uh, was created with the help of an algorithm. So, viewers, please watch that with your family. That's a great.
0: You know what? I I I take back everything I said about how this this algorithm driven content. Uh, is not that bad because that movie, I actually did try to watch it with a friend of mine and some drinks and we had to start fast forwarding halfway through because it was such incoherent dog shit. Max Landis should not be allowed to write things. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Anyway, um, so that does conclude hacks for the year. We're sorry that we're going out Morales, but we, she will return with us in, uh, in the new year. We hope that you enjoy re-listening to our back catalog available to stream on Spotify and many other places. <laughs> Um, and we, we probably, we, I was gonna, th- I was gonna say, is there anything we might actually look at our, our stats one day and try to determine if anything, if any particular subject matter did better. And then we'll see if algorithmic content production works even on a small scale. Uh, in
1: the meantime, listeners just load yeah. up the hacks playlist on Spotify and put it on repeat for the entire holiday season. We, we need,
0: <laughs> we need My dudes, news. if, if you, if, if any of you out there did that, we would i mean i we we'd all be eternally grateful i think um we we wouldn't be getting any 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 royalties i don't even know how that works
1: to be honest laying the groundwork for patreon simon
0: if we got a million streams overnight how would they even know who to pay we'll have to figure that out at some point anyway (laughs) that's it for us for the year we will be back in early january to respond to whatever horrible things have transpired over the holidays Um, (laughs) i mean like globally not personally in our lives although maybe Maybe we'll pivot to becoming a really personal podcast instead. But uh, if you do enjoy what we do, take a moment, go to iTunes, rate, review, smash that like button, whatever, all those things that people do. And, uh, you know, it helps with visibility and whatnot. There's a lot of tech podcasts out there, but there's only one Hacks. And that's it for us. And goodbye.
2: Yeah, sending our best uh, 2019 wishes out to everybody yes
1: have a happy holiday listeners
0: Or, or don't you know follow your bliss